Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil that he gives to his beloved sleep. Isaiah, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This morning we're in week two of this series we began last week on disciplines. These practices that you have to engage in if you want to have a a thriving, growing relationship with God. One of the things I'm afraid of happening in this series is that we're basically each week talking about another thing you have to do. And so as the series builds, you know, you just have this long list of things you're supposed to do. And, you know, last week we we talked about the first one and you think, okay, I'm going to do that. But then the next week rolls around, and we talk about the next one, and you think, oh, okay, I really got to do that. But you haven't started on the first one yet, and you get so overwhelmed that, you know, the whole series goes by, and you don't do any of them. So to prevent against that, as a, as a small preventative measure, one thing we can do is start each week by hearkening back to the prior week and reviewing and reminding you just so if you haven't started on that one you can just forget about this week and one at a time go back to to what we talked about last week so i want to do that this morning i want to before we get into this morning's topic i want to review what we talked about last week real briefly last week we talked about the first spiritual practice that you have to engage in if you want to get close to god which is this discipline of community of being involved in these a spiritually focused, substantive relationships with other Christians. If you're not doing that, forget about the rest of it. It's not going to happen. Because what Scripture says is, it's quite harsh, but it's in the Bible. It says, if you say you love God and aren't growing in your love for other Christians, then you are a liar. So what we focused on last week, more than the argument for community, than the importance of community, we actually just talked about these two practical uh, applications, two opportunities that we have right now in our church for putting this into practice. The first of which is this all-church retreat that's coming up, and the second, second of which is our community groups. And I know how this goes because I'm the same way. A lot of you, after last week, you intended to sign up for the all-church retreat. You intended to, to sign up for a community group but then, you know, Monday rolled around and you forgot about it and kind of lost steam. And so what the first thing I want to do this morning before we talk about number two is to, to kind of reignite your enthusiasm for those two things. So to do, to do that, I want you to hear from uh, two folks 
uh, first a couple that that attended the retreat for the first time last year, not really knowing that many people ahead of time, and hear about their experience, and then second from a woman who just joined a community group recently last term without really knowing anybody in the group before him. So first to talk about the retreat, please welcome Troy and Laura Predis. Actually, I'm surprised that we went to the retreat last year. You know, we hadn't hadn't been at the church for longer than a year, and I, I mean, we've been going to church our whole adult life, and and as a personal practice, I, I intentionally avoid being in situations where I don't know a lot of people, and they may be talking about personal stuff. Um, best practice. So <laughs> I thought, um, but. You know, people were persuasive, people like, like us and Ryan standing up last year saying, just come, try it. So, so we went and we tried it. We brought our car for a quick escape. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it was great. I, I got the chance to try things that I hadn't in the past, like spending an hour alone in prayer and quiet time with God. And that was, that was pretty incredible. I mean, it's not something you get to do in your normal life. What did you say? I agree with everything. That, that Laura said. In fact, this time when it comes around, we didn't even hesitate uh, one moment. It was just automatically going to be on the calendar. And, and as Laura was saying, I would put myself in that camp as well. I love coming to church on Sunday mornings, but sometimes you're a little worried, or you can be, or at least I am. You go to a retreat, you go to a smaller setting, are you going to be put in an uncomfortable position? What's this going to be about? How's it going to feel? Is, are you going to be called upon in some way that you're not quite ready for, or prepared for? And what I found with the Retreat is that you can engage in the way that's going to be most comfortable and most effective for you, wherever you are at that time. And that is incredibly welcoming. And uh, frankly, in some sense, from my perspective, the genius of the way the retreat uh, is done is that it realizes, at least again from my experience, that everybody needs something different. Everybody comes to an event like that in a different way. Everybody has their own hesitancies and their own needs uh, and desires, and wherever you are, uh, the weekend is set up that you can get that uh, out of it. And so if that's the case, as I said, for Laura and myself, when you think about it as I did and we did from that perspective, you can't even fathom a reason why not to go. Uh, and so we're going to be there again. Uh, we're excited. We're looking forward to it. Uh, we met a ton of great uh, folks. We continue to meet folks, and we're looking forward to meeting folks uh, who we haven't met before and just reconnecting with others uh, and deepening the relationship uh, in, the next, uh, in the next month or so. Thanks, Ryan. And next to talk about uh, her experience joining a community group, please welcome Kat Franklin. Good morning. Uh, As Ryan said, I'm Kat. Hi. (laughs) I have friends in the front row, so that helps. Um, I dreamt uh, last week that I was doing this, and I went on way too long, and Ryan kicked me out of the church in front of everybody. (laughs) Um, so, which is mortifying. <laughs> so I made notes, um, so excuse that. I don't want to, I want to avoid that fate. Um, so I grew up in an Episcopal church in a very small, tight-knit community down in Southern Maryland. Um, my mom and her entire family um, are Christian. My father is Jewish, and his family is obviously Jewish. Um, while I grew up um, in a pretty devout Christian family, went to church camp every summer, Sunday school every morning, church every Sunday, um, I still also had a a pretty strong connection and affinity for the Jewish faith. 
Um, as I got older, however, I really started to struggle with Jesus. This is the part that's going to get me kicked out of church, not talking too long. Um, I really wanted to embrace him, but I really didn't understand the Holy Trinity. Um, I found his place in it really hard to wrap my head around. I asked a lot of questions, and it didn't seem to help me get any closer. And then I got to the point where I began to really feel like a hypocrite, um, to the point where I thought maybe I shouldn't be going to church. Because while I wanted a relationship with God, I felt like I couldn't fully embrace, if I couldn't fully embrace Jesus as part of that, then I probably shouldn't be there. And as a baptized and confirmed Christian, I felt like a fraud. I thought that, you know, God was going to see right through me and see my confusion and and not be so happy. Um, So I went to church when I um, was home with my family, but from college on, I I, I rarely went. Uh, For a long time, I actually considered converting to Judaism because I thought, oh, that's the way to get around this whole Jesus thing and um, (laughs) still have a relationship with God. Um, that's how desperate I was. So then last summer, I spent two weeks in Israel visiting friends and family. I had never been there before. And in Jerusalem especially, something started to, to really happen there. You know, it's cliche, but I was in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and where Jesus was crucified and buried, and his tomb was there. And it, it, something just opened up inside of me. And looking back on it now, I think that was probably the, the calling, which we talk about um, so much here. So then two months later, I think apropos of nothing, my friends Laura and Troy, who I worked with Laura, um, randomly invited me to join her uh, in Troy at church at LMCC. So without much thought, I went. Uh, My first church service was September 11th, and the two sermon series Ryan did after that were on bad religion. And without going into a lot of detail, a light bulb went off in my head, and all of a sudden... (laughs) Jesus made sense to me in a way that he had never made sense to me before, uh, which was a huge relief, um, but more than that, at that point, I was, I was in. It, it took one second, and I was there. Um, and I, I think I scared you after the service, like, raving about, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so um, when one goes all in, one joins a community group immediately, which is exactly what I did. And like Ryan said, I didn't know anybody. Um, and I, I signed up, and a week later I was in this group, and I meet with Alicia Lee's group that she leads, and um, we meet at Randa's house in Battery Park City every Monday night, and there's probably between 15 and 20 people in that group. Um, I would say on average we've always got about 15, 12 to 15 people there. Um, and we have a really interesting model for the group, and, and I will say that by the end of the first group, I felt completely at home, which was a little bit surprising, but it was, it was the truth. So we have a really interesting format. We do what's called character studies. So basically, every week, somebody from the group facilitates a discussion about a character and a story from the Bible. So we go through as a group discussing this character. We talk about their motivations, um, you know, what they were all about, their stories. And there's such a, a vast diversity and like life experiences and perspectives in this group that it really um, breathes new life into what I thought I knew about these stories. Now, I have to admit, I'm probably the least Bible-savvy person in the group. Um, Gary's got encyclopedic knowledge, and I do not, but he's always like so great to listen to. Um, I always found the Bible a bit daunting, but the way we do this with characters, it really breaks it down for me in more manageable, digestible pieces, so I'm able to internalize the stories, understand them, bring them with me, um, and we just have a lot of fun, and, and it's just, it's dynamic, and it's such a warm group of people. So, 
We end each group with prayer. Um, We either do this as a large group where we go around and everyone talks about what's going on in their lives and, you know, we pray for them or for someone that they um, want to pray for or something that's going on in their life. Or we break up into really small groups of three or four people and we pray um, in that smaller forum. Um, I'm not also a great, I wasn't a great prayer because I hadn't really done it consistently for a long time. So at first I kind of sat out the first two prayers of actually saying prayers. I was listening to the prayers. Um, But it's been so good to help me practice and get back into that habit um, and actually feel the the power of that again. And that's something that I I now do every day, and that's been a blessing. So I agree with Ryan when he says that coming here every Sunday is, is awesome, but it doesn't give you the full picture of what it's like to be part of this community. And that has 100% been uh, my experience here. Uh, so to wrap this up, I've lived in New York on and off for 10 years now, and I, I really had no idea that communities like this and the community that I found in the group actually existed. I sort of thought they were relegated to... Um, the small towns like the one I grew up in, um, but, the, but the groups and, and this church have added so much to my life already, and quite frankly, it filled a space that I didn't even know was there. So uh, most of all, I'm happy for that, and I'm happy that you know right now my faith hasn't been stronger. So thank you. So that wraps up the, the review portion from last week. I know that's a significant amount of time to take for review for the, the subject we already talked about. But the reason I, I feel like that's justified is, you know, the rest of this series, the rest of this discipline series, we're going to be talking about things you do on your own. And it's just, it can give the wrong idea. It can give this idea that Christianity is a solo sport. Christianity is something you do in your own mind and hearts. Christianity is something you do in private, and it just isn't. So I, I really mean this when I say you can forget about the rest of the series if you're not doing these things already, if you're not involved in community. If there's one thing that could happen from this series, it's this, this first practice of getting involved in these relationships. It's very simple. It's just that you have to take the step. You have to either sign up for the retreat. It's March 3rd through 5th. And emails have gone out about it. You can sign up on the website. Or to join a community group, all you have to do is check the box on the back of your welcome card and drop it uh, in the, the little receptacle on your way out, and we'll find a group for you. So that's the first discipline of the Christian life community. Now, let's segue into this week's topic. It'll be a little bit abbreviated because we used a portion of our time already. This week, in week two of this series, I want to talk about the, the second discipline, second thing you have to do to, to grow as a Christian. And it's going to be one that, that surprises you at first, because the second thing that you have to do to have a growing relationship with God is this discipline, this practice of sleep. And you say, sleep? You know, what's, what's spiritual about that? Why is that week number two? And it wasn't originally going to be week number two. Originally, I was thinking that the next two things we were going to talk about would be scripture and prayer, because those are the two main things you have to do in private to to get closer to God. You have to read the Bible, and you have to pray. So I was thinking weeks two and three of the series would be scripture and, and prayer, respectively. But as I thought about it, I realized that we needed to take a step back and slow down a little bit. Because we've talked about scripture and prayer plenty of times at this church before. 
And what happens is people hear the sermons and they, they resolve, okay, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do better about that. Same thing has happened to me plenty of times. Here's a sermon on you need to pray more or you need to read the Bible more. And I think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do better about that. And I do better for about a week and then it kind of reverts. And so instead of just doing that all over again, uh, what I'd rather do is figure out what's the root problem. What's the obstacle? Why do we keep saying we're going to do these things and then not do them? And as I reflected on my conversations with people and I, I reflected on my own experience, what I, the conclusion I came to is the reason that people don't pray more and don't read the Bible more is not because they don't have enough time. That's what we say it is, but that's not what it is. It's not that we don't have enough time. It's that when we do have the time, we don't have enough energy. You have the time, but when you have the time, you don't have enough energy. Why? Because these things are hard. Prayer is hard. Reading scripture is hard. There's no reason to pretend like it's not. It's really difficult. And if you're not well rested, if you're tired, you just can't even do it. This goes for, I mean, even any serious conversation you can't really have when you're tired. You can't read any challenging material when you're tired. So how much more so for the most serious conversation, the most challenging material? You really simply cannot live a spiritually rich life on a sleep deficit. Now, there are all sorts of other lives you can live on a sleep deficit. You can be successful on a sleep deficit. There are all sorts of activities you can do when you're tired. You can obviously watch TV when you're tired, but you can also, most people in this room check email when they're tired. They check things off their to-do list when they're tired. They get stuff done when they're tired. Lots of stuff you can do when you're tired. Connecting with God isn't one of them. You can't connect with God if you're tired. There's this uh, heartbreaking episode in the Gospels, where Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, invites his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go with him into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. This time of prayer he wants to have with his three closest disciples on the most important night of his life. And they can't stay awake. Three times. He wakes them up three times, and they keep falling back asleep. And the question is, how many times has that happened to you, where God wants to meet with you, and you can't stay awake. Or there's a chance to make real spiritual progress, but you're too tired, and so you do some other lower importance activity instead. It's happened to me plenty of times. So we've got to figure out sleep first. Sleep is the first thing. And to do that, I want to, I want to talk about this subject under two headings, just two parts to this morning's sermon. First, the vanity of sleeping too little. And then second, how to sleep more and better. The vanity of sleeping too little and how to sleep more and better. Those will be the two sections to this morning's sermon, and we'll take them one at a time. So first, the vanity of sleeping too little. I'm getting that word vanity from this morning's scripture reading. You heard it a moment ago, but let's just look at it again briefly. We'll put this up on the screen if we have it. It says uh, Psalm 127, or it's on the back of your program as well. The psalmist says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Psalmist uses the word vain three times in the passage. Why is this lifestyle of getting up early and going late to rest and getting as little sleep as you can, why is that lifestyle vain, according to the psalmist? Three reasons. First reason it's vain is because all the big stuff is out of your control anyway. God is in control of all the big stuff. Your level of control is very small. That's what he means when he says, unless the Lord builds the house, your your work is in vain. You can work as hard as you want to, but at the end of the day, if God doesn't want the house to stand, the house isn't going to stand. So there's this vanity of thinking that it's all up to you. The the mindset of this person who tries to get as little sleep as possible is, it's all up to me. It all depends on me. And if, if I don't keep working harder and harder and harder every day and every week, I'm going to fall behind. I'm not going to have enough. But all the big stuff is outside of your control. Anyway, that's the first reason it's vain, pointless. The second reason it's vain, according to the psalmist, is because even if you are successful, so, so in scenario one, you know, you work so hard, but then these big things outside of your control happen. Well, what was the point? In scenario two, let's say you are successful and everything goes exactly the way you want it to go, according to your plans. You've got the master plan, you sleep five hours a night to get it done, and it all goes perfectly. So how is that vain? Well, because what he says is, you, go, you rise up early, you go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. The bread of anxious toil. In other words, you got bread. It's not like you're, you're poor or going hungry. It worked. You got the bread. But it's the bread of anxious toil. And the implication is the bread of anxious toil doesn't taste very good. That's the position a lot of people in this city find themselves in. In the city that never sleeps. Is they've accomplished everything they set out to accomplish. They got the job they wanted to get. They live in the neighborhood they wanted to live in. Their kids are going to school that they wanted their kids to go to school at. But somehow it doesn't feel the way they thought it was going to feel. Because it doesn't matter if you get everything you wanted, if you're so anxious and tired all the time that you can't enjoy it. And if you have this attitude of, it all depends on me, well, fine, who cares if you reach all your goals? Because it'll be the bread of anxious toil that you're eating, and you won't even be able to enjoy it. But the third reason, it's vain, pointless, to try to get by on as little sleep as possible. This one's not explicitly mentioned in this psalm, but it's talked about in other passages of Scripture. Third reason that's a pointless way to live is because it's massively counterproductive. You're always shooting yourself in the foot. When Bill Clinton first took office, everybody was amazed that he could get by on five hours of sleep a night. You know, it was publicized, and it was like this, like he's this Superman, so, so cool. Well, a couple of problems with that. One, you know, he later has this heart attack and says, the doctor said it was a lot because he wasn't sleeping enough, so he publicly said, i got to sleep more. So there's that. If you get all that done and then you die 20 years early, that kind of wipes it out. But then the, the second thing is, he said one time, he said, every important bad decision I've ever made 
I made because I was too tired. So that's an interesting statement worth pondering. I mean, we can, because we can throw out all of his bad decisions except for one. And if you just take that one bad decision, if you just take that one scandal and all the time he lost on that one scandal, all the things he couldn't get done because of that one scandal, and balance that against all the extra stuff he got done by sleeping five hours a night, does he come out ahead? There's no chance. There's no way he comes out ahead. Productivity is not the number of things you get done. It's the number of things you get done minus cleaning up for all the bad decisions and mistakes you made. In fact, it's not even the number of things you get done. It's doing the right things, knowing what to say no to, having this perspective where instead of being reactive and just responding to a million emails, which everyone comes in next, which is what you do when you're tired, you don't step back and figure out what's most important. You can't do that if you're tired. When you're tired, you have no discipline, you have no self-control, your emotions are out of control. Those of you who have kids know this. Your kids turn into absolute monsters when they don't have sleep. They're just insane. And you, you look at them and you think, I'm a complete failure as a parent. Like, this child is going to grow up and be a menace to society. <laughs> and then you just say, well, last resort, we'll just try this one thing. We'll enforce a regular bedtime for a week. And all of a sudden, the kid is a perfect angel. And all that happened is sleep. Sleep is the only difference. And the question is, do you really think you're that different? You know, you, you might hide it better. But it's the same thing with us. It's not just that you're not at your best when you don't get enough sleep. It's that you often move backwards. You do stuff that actually, instead of taking you forward, reverses your progress because you're not in the right frame of mind. You know, we're talking about vanity, and we've been talking about the, the sense of it being pointless. Vain, it's vain, it's pointless. But obviously the other meaning of the word vain is uh, concerned with appearances, pride. And, and that applies here too. Bertrand Russell said that uh, men who sleep badly are always proud of the fact. And that is so true in this city. The way people brag about the hours that they work and brag about the little sleep that they get. And it's just vanity, the Bible says. It's vanity. You can brag about it all you want and tell yourself you're getting more done all you want, but it's vanity. It's the bread of anxious toil because God gives to his beloved sleep. That's the first section of the sermon, the vanity of sleeping too little. It's prideful and it's pointless. So now moving into section two, the second half of the the sermon, part two this morning is how to sleep more and better. How to sleep more, how to sleep better. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of articles online about this that you can read. And I think you should, you know, all these practical tips. The biggest one by far is go to bed at the same time every night, get up at the same time every morning, including weekends. That's like 50% of it, at least. And then there's all these other tips about avoiding blue light and, you know, read before bed instead of watching TV and bedroom temperature and all this other stuff. And all of that can help. But we're not going to focus on that because you can go home and look those articles up yourself. That's not why you come to church. So there's the practical side, which you need to do, but then there's also the spiritual side, which is what I want us to focus on. 
And again, if you try to just do these spiritual things without doing the practical side, well, that's not going to work. But on the other hand, if you've tried to do these practical things without applying this spiritual stuff, that's not going to work either. So here's the other half of the equation. The two things you have to do spiritually in order to sleep more and to sleep better. Two of them. First, release control. And second, remember the resurrection. Release control and remember the resurrection. So first, release control. One of the questions we can ask about sleep, which we haven't asked yet this morning, is why did God invent sleep in the first place? You know, why did he write this into the human story where we have to sleep? This doesn't, he didn't have to. We're not going to sleep in heaven. So why does he make us like this? And the answer is, it's just one more way of reinforcing the difference between us and him. So let me read you a couple of verses on this. From Psalm 121, it says, Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And then that first part of the Isaiah passage you already heard. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He doesn't need to sleep, and we do. So it's like sleep is like this, this constant reminder, this broken record every 24 hours of you're not God. You're not God. You're not God. You're not in control. You're not in control. And it's amazing that it applies to everybody. You know, the, the, the billionaire, the superstar athlete, this high-powered executive, every 24 hours, every one of them, no matter who they are, has to become like this little baby. Blind, weak, helpless, vulnerable. It's absolutely humiliating if you fight it. Or it's humbling, in a good way, if you just embrace it. If you do embrace it, instead of fighting it, instead of trying to get by on as little sleep as possible, if you, like the psalm says, accept sleep as a gift from God to you, and you embrace it and surrender, then what sleep becomes actually is an act of worship, something that pleases God. Your sleep can please God. Again, back to kids, I, just, I love, after my girls are asleep, going into their room and just watching them sleep is watching them lay there, watching them breathe. And one of the reasons I love it is because it means they have finally given up control. Because all day long, those little girls fight me for control of our house. <laughs> and I have to be constantly putting them back in their place all day long. And at the end of the day, there's always this point where they just, they, they, they don't have anything left. They've been fighting, and they've been fighting, and they've been fighting. Sometimes they're fighting all the way up until the last seconds. No, 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 crying, 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 and then asleep. But at the point that they fall asleep, it's over. They've lost control. They've surrendered. Same thing with us and God. We fight control. We fight God for control of our lives all day long. And sleep is this act of surrender and this act of worship. And you say, well, I'd love to sleep more. I'd love to sleep better, but I can't. And I can't get to sleep. I try to go to bed earlier, and I just, my mind races. You know, I, I can't sleep. Well, that's because you haven't really trusted God with your life. You know, there's this, uh, let me read you another verse here from Psalms. Chapter 4, 
the psalmist says, I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The peace comes from this trust of God. Or there's that episode in the Gospels where Jesus is sleeping like a baby in the middle of this giant storm. Why can Jesus sleep like a baby? Because he trusts his father. So practically what that means is, you say, well, thanks for telling me I don't trust God enough. Well, what am I supposed to do about that? Well, you have to consciously release control before bed. So going back to all the sleep articles and sleep studies, one of the things they've studied uh, and, and proven is that if you meditate before bed for 30 minutes, uh, it, it's a better cure for insomnia than sleeping pills. You know, scientific studies, it works a lot better. So what's meditation? I think everybody probably knows this already because it's in the news a lot. It's kind of in the culture a lot. But it's this ancient Buddhist practice where you, you sit there and you try to focus on your breath and then as thoughts come, because inevitably they will, you won't be able to focus on your breath for 30 minutes. Every time you lose consciousness of your breath and think of something else, you just release it. You just let it go and then return to, to thinking about your breath. And it works. Well, it's not only an ancient Buddhist practice, it's also an ancient Christian practice. But the Christian practice is actually a lot better because instead of focusing on your breath, you focus on God. So, you know, there's different versions of this. I mean, you focus on a name for God, you just focus on the word Father or the word Spirit. You pray this short prayer over and over again, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. It's one of the oldest ones, thousands of years old. And you, tr- you try to stay focused on God's presence. Well, you're, again, you're not going to be able to. You're all, as, as soon as you start doing that, whether it's going to be 10 seconds later or 10 minutes later, other thoughts are going to rush in. And people treat this like it's the enemy. Like the people say, well, I try to pray, but then I get so distracted. Well, the distractions aren't the enemy. The distractions are the point. Because what are you getting distracted by? What are these thoughts that are coming in? That's what you're supposed to pray about. So you sit there, you, you try to focus on God's presence. A thought comes in. And the, the best thing about this is the stuff you really need to, to pray about is not the stuff you're conscious of. It's the subconscious stuff. And that's what this practice allows you to do, is you sit there and the subconscious comes out and something pops into your mind and you think, where did that come from? And that's what you offer to God. That's what you release to God. You don't start worrying about it. You don't start thinking, well, what am I supposed to do about this problem or this feeling or this emotion or this fantasy that I just had that is disgusting. You just say, God, this is yours. This is yours to deal with. I release control with you. I can't do anything about this. I release control to you. And you do that for 30 minutes, and guess what? Watch how you sleep. So that's the first thing. Release control consciously. The second thing you have to do to to sleep more soundly and to sleep longer on a spiritual level is you have to remember the resurrection. One of the interesting things about sleep is this connection it has to death. To get a little bit dark here at the end. Uh, there's this African proverb that says, sleep is the friend of death. Or Schopenhauer, the, the great German philosopher, said, every day is a mini life. Every time you wake up, it's like a birth. And every time you go to sleep, it's like death. And there's a sense in which uh, sleep is great practice for death. 
Because the same God that you have to trust to watch over you while you sleep is the same God that you're going to have to trust in the end when you die. So this connection between sleep and death, what it gets at is there's one thing that's really going to keep you awake at night, which is wondering if your soul is in danger. Nothing kind of gnaws at you like that. This is why the old prayer way back that kids used to all pray before they went to sleep was, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Again, this very dark, morose prayer, but parents felt like this is, this is where it's at. This is the essence of peace, isn't it? The essence of being able to sleep soundly is trusting God with your soul. So how do you get to that point? How do you get to the point where you trust God with your soul, or you don't fear death? For the Christian, it's easy. The way the Christian is able to not fear death is by realizing that death is nothing more than sleep. Jesus is the one that first introduces this terminology. He talks about it in the Gospels when he's uh, going to go raise somebody from the dead. You know, Lazarus, for example, he says, oh, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. And nobody has any idea what he's talking about. You know, they're just all like really confused. But then after the resurrection, and after the early Christians figure out that the resurrection of Christ is not a one-off event, it's normative for all those who are in Christ, then they start using that terminology about all Christians who have died. So you see this in the New Testament. You know, Paul in his letters will say, well, so-and-so has fallen asleep, and he means they've died. And we sort of just pass over that like it's just a, a euphemism, you know, like they, they don't, they're being polite, falling asleep. But it's not a euphemism. It's this very particular, very profound statement of faith. And the way you know that is by looking at the places where the phrase fallen asleep is not used. So before Christ, it never talks about anybody falling asleep. It's always just they died. And also, even after Christ, the, the phrase fallen asleep is never used with regard to the death of an unbeliever, the death of somebody who has defied God. For them, it's just they died. It's over. But most important of all, the phrase fallen asleep is never used with respect to the death of Christ himself. Never says Christ fell asleep, even though he was eventually raised. Never says that. Why? Because Christ died the death of an unbeliever. The thing that makes death so awful, so terrible, is this separation from God. That's what makes death, death. In some sense, that's the definition of death. And that's what Jesus underwent. He didn't just fall asleep. He was separated from God. He died condemned. He died with sin on his shoulders. Not his own sin, but our sin. And by doing that in our place, by dying that death of condemnation, that real final death of separation from God in our place, what that means is that it doesn't lie in store for us if we're in Christ. That there is no final death of being separated from God, but, but what is so-called death is really just this falling asleep, and you wake up again on the resurrection. And if you can remember that, if you can remember that the final death of condemnation has already been undergone by someone else in your place, then it will enable you to sleep soundly. Let's pray. 
Father, you know how we struggle to trust you. We just spin our wheels all day. We work, 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 work all day. We vacillate between this constant activity of trying to get things done and this mindless entertainment to try to unwind and numb ourselves, stimulate ourselves with caffeine, and then try to bring ourselves down with alcohol. And we know you have a better way for us. We see in Scripture this portrayal of trusting you like a child, allowing you to work on our behalf. Still working, but working at this sane, moderate pace, moderate hours, sleeping soundly because we're trusting you. It's attractive to us, but we don't know how to switch. We don't know how to to make the leap from where we are to this place that you portray that we could be. So we ask that you would help us. By the power of your spirit, would you come? Would you show us just one small step we can take this next week? Whether it be something we talked about this morning or something else. Just give us one way to start on this. And then, again, by your spirit, encourage us and keep us on. Keep drawing us on this path. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.